have quite a few announcements this morning. Lots of exciting things. Um, with, the, with fall coming, even though the weather doesn't feel like that yet. <laughs> It'll be busy fall, but we have our baby dedications next Sunday. Well, yes, how sweet it is when you just see those cute babies being dedicated. It's next Sunday. It'll be during our morning service. Um, if you would like to have, dedicate your baby and you haven't registered, that's okay. You can still register online or on our app. Um, and you just register and fill out all the information, and it is, you can invite your friends and your family, but it is next Sunday during our morning service. Also, we will be having Sam Bess, our very own Sam Bess, will be starting our men's Bible study. Yes, how exciting. I know a lot of you guys have been wanting a men's Bible study, so he will be having a men's Bible study. It will start on Thursday, September 20th at 6 p.m. in the Red Room, excuse me, Tuesday, not Thursday, so sorry. <laughs> It'll be Tuesdays, it's, and like I said, starts on September 20th at 6 p.m. right in the Red Room. Also, we have an event coming up. It is a, our church movie night. It is gonna be featuring the movie Time Changer. It's an exciting movie. This is actually um, a movie that is going to take us into, or set us up going into our School of the Bible. It is a really, I have not personally seen the movie. I've heard very good things about it. So it is going to be an exciting time. It's going to be Friday, September 30th at 7 p.m. We will provide dinner. All you have to do is bring your lawn chairs and blankets. Hopefully it will be cooler weather <laughs> for blankets. But it's going to be fun. All ages. It'll be right outside in our parking lot. We'll have the big blow-up screen. It'll be fun. Who doesn't like watching movies under the stars? <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. That will set us up going right into that same weekend. Our School of the Bible will start that, that Sunday right after October 2nd. Yes, you have been hearing us announce. You've been hearing Ms. Pam preach on School of the Bible. It is going to be an exciting time. We are going to be definitely opening our Bibles and just seeing it in a whole new, different way from the beginning. <laughs> I love that. That will be lots of announcements. I'm out of breath. <laughs> It'll be September, or excuse me, October 2nd. That will be at 9 a.m. right here in our church. That will also change our service times. So we will now start our church service at 1030 following the class. But we will have donuts and coffee after, so you can snack before. Who doesn't like donuts and coffee? <laughs> so lots of exciting things happening. During the School of the Bible, junior and senior high will also be meeting with Cameron in the Red Room at 9 a.m., having their own School of the Bible, so it'll be really exciting. So they will be meeting at 9 a.m. while we do our class at 9 a.m., right? <laughs> That's it for the announcements for now. <laughs> I wish everyone an amazing Sunday. Yes, doing announcements is tough, I tell you. I mean, you get so many, and then you got to keep track, and then all kinds of slides, and then praise God. And, uh, you know, we know how to get you out of events. So you notice that there's dinner at the movie night. There's coffee and donuts for the Bible study. We know, we know, y'all. We know how to get you there. Oh, if you're new with us this morning or if you haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Cameron. Um, my wife, Samantha, and I are the youth ministers here at Harvest Bible Church. We have the incredible privilege and responsibility to pour into the next generation of believers. 
Uh, we just came back from the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk Beach Blitz this past weekend. Oh my goodness. It was incredible. Don't get me wrong. We had an amazing, amazing time. The speaker, the worship, it was, it was all amazing. And uh, there was a great move of God. Um, and I just believe that one of the metrics you use to measure if you're a great youth pastor or not is how many spinning rides did you go on with your students? Um, using that metric today, um, I'm, I'm incredible. I'm amazing. Um, I went on so many of those spinning rides. I'm all dizzy walking around. They're like, let's go on again. I said, no, I've hit my limit for my quota for the rest of the year, okay? No more spinning rides. And I'm wondering who decided that spinning in something was fun? Like, who decided that was a thrill? It's like, hey, you know what? Let's just put someone in a death trap and then spin it as fast as we can until they're nauseous and wobbling coming off the ride. That sounds like something appropriate for children and for adults supervising children. Um, but it absolutely would not have been possible First of all, without this church and their giving to make sure we got so many people there. We had 16 or 17 students, uh, 17. I didn't lose anybody, I do remember. Um, and they all got to go for not a single cent did they pay. Um, after our fundraiser, you guys, I, uh, I had mentioned, I was like, you know, it's just going to be $10 for each student right away. Someone came up to me and said, I will pay the rest of the students $150. And so our students paid nothing when they went up. So praise God. Give it up for this amazing church. And uh, what an event. Um, anyways, uh, my wife tried to tell me that a small blanket would not be adequate for uh, sleeping, you know, right next to the beach. I figured that's probably fine. Um, it wasn't fine. Um, I woke up just about every hour on the hour, uh, freezing, shivering, trying to warm up my feet. I'm putting on all my extra clothes and I'm just trying to create heat in this small blanket. Um, so praise God, listen to your wives. Um, but it is such a great honor for me to be here this morning and to be sharing a message with you that I believe God has really placed on my heart um, for us this morning. And here's the thing, I'm not always a long-winded speaker, okay? And I know the only thing standing between you and a good lunch is me. Um, once I'm done, we're out of here, okay? But if you would just follow me as I follow Holy Spirit this morning, I believe that you'll be blessed. Because if you came here, I'm believing that you came here with an expectation. You came here believing that God wants to speak to you. And it's not because I have anything interesting to say on my own. It's not because I have these creative thoughts or great interpretations. But when God wants to speak, how many of you know God will use anybody to speak? Hallelujah. If God can use a donkey, I believe God can use me. At the risk of sounding a little conceited, um, God can use me to speak to you. And this morning, I want to look at something that's not only important for newer believers to understand, but this is important for people who have been Christians. Maybe you've been a Christian just about your whole life. This is something you need to understand. And this morning, we are talking about grace. Turn to your neighbor and say grace. Now, here's the thing. The grace of God is like nothing that we've ever seen before. And the title of my message this morning is my favorite way to describe it. The title of my message is Unrelenting Grace. 
Let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> We've prayed all morning. The word is already anointed. Um, I'm the one who needs help to get it out, okay? So pray for me. Something that we do in youth every time we talk about something is we like to define the words that we're talking about. Okay, how many of you know it's important that we should know what these words mean if we're talking about them? And this is something that's especially important, but how many of you know it's also important to talk about what something is not? We got to talk about what it is, and then we have all kinds of misconceptions of what people think it is. And we got to address both. And I believe this is especially important when we're talking about grace. So first of all, the word unrelenting means not yielding in strength, severity, or determination. Essentially meaning that God's grace is determined and it's, it's not holding anything back. The grace of God is determined and it's not holding anything back. That's unrelenting. Now we need to talk about grace, but when we're talking about this word, we need more than a dictionary to define it. We need a Bible. So what we're doing this morning is describing what this word grace means by talking about what it is, and we're also going to talk about what grace is not, which is equally important, especially with grace. A shorthand definition that I'll give to start, grace is an exchange of my sin for God's righteousness. The grace of God is an exchange of my sin for God's righteousness. So that when Jesus died on the cross for me, God no longer looks at me and sees my sin and my failure, but he sees the righteousness of his son. And through that way, I'm made right with God. The great exchange, Jesus, who is perfect without sin, gave me his righteousness and took on the weight and the punishment of my sin. And if no one's told you, let me be the first to tell you, he's done that for you too. Not just for me. The great exchange. Now let's talk quickly here about what grace is not. Because I've seen a lot of believers throughout my time, they think that grace is just freedom to do whatever you want. They say, after all, you know, God will just forgive me. So, I mean, really, I can do whatever I want, and then I just lean on the grace of God. But do you know that grace is actually the opposite of that? Grace is not freedom to sin. Grace is God's freedom from sin. His grace is supposed to set us free. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Galatians 5.13. When you're there, say amen. Paul writes, he says, for you have been called to live in freedom. Turn to your neighbor, say, you've been called to live in freedom. He says, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Did you catch that? God has given you a choice of what you want to do with your freedom. God is saying, you can. 
Clearly, the option is there for us to misuse God's grace, but he says, don't use it to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So the truth is, you're not free to sin. God has made you free to love. God's grace is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. And we all have what I like to call an inner self and an outer self. Our inner selves is our spirit. And our outer selves is our flesh. We could call that our sinful nature. So much of life on this earth is finding a way to live with your flesh instead of living by your flesh. How many of you know you can't be detached from your flesh while you're here on earth? That means you left it. But the point is we don't live by our sinful nature. We have to find a way to live with it. The temptations of our sinful nature, they don't stop when we get to a certain point of spirituality. When our relationship with Jesus gets to a certain point, it's not like we stopped receiving temptation. Do you know who got tempted in the Bible? Jesus did. So why would we think that there'll be a point where we never have to battle or struggle with this sinful nature that we have inside of us? We're all born with a sinful nature. That's the reason we needed Jesus to come in the first place. That's why we needed him, because we're born with the sinful nature. But can I tell you one of the most heartbreaking things I see that people do with grace is they take what God meant to set them free and they use it to enslave themselves to sin. Themselves. How does this happen? They think grace means this is just my free pass, my freedom to sin. I can do whatever I like and I have God's grace to fall back on. Then what happens? They get caught in a sin cycle. And what was intended to break their chains They've used a demonic, twisted version of it to bind themselves. God's grace is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. God's grace empowers us to be free. If you're still in Galatians, look a few short verses down. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Watch this. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what our sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. You know where freedom from sin begins? When the Holy Spirit starts to lead you? When you start to be led by Holy Spirit, he says that you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. They're opposite. They desire opposite things. And let's look at what else is written. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 5. Reading through verse 8, it says, Those who live in accordance to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. Meaning, when you live 
by your flesh. Your life is dictated by that. That's where your mind is. It says, but those who live in accordance with the spirit, right, when they're being led by the spirit, have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. If I had to ask you this morning, which do you prefer? Life and peace or death? Life and peace, when your mind is governed by your spirit, says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Watch this. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't say it'll be hard to. No. Cannot please God. All of that to establish, we all need God's grace. Some of us more than others. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want anyone pointing fingers or looking at their spouses like, "Mm mm-hmm, he's right, listen to him. Don't look at me in that tone of voice, okay? I'm just kidding, gotta cut that off. This is not an altar call. But if we're honest, sometimes we think that. We may not always say it. And that person really needs God's grace. You heard what just happened to them? But do you realize that all sin grieves the heart of God? All of it, not just what we call big sins or medium sins or small sins. All sin grieves the, God, the heart of God, and we all need his grace. Amen? Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, I need some grace. <laughs> well, I'm glad this morning, um, realizing that the Bible is not just full of definitions and we have to figure it out. The Bible is full of illustrations and points that help us understand these through the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't just write it, tell someone to write it in a book and let them figure it out. Jesus came down and lived it partially so that we can understand it. And so this morning, we're going to look at three different views of God's unrelenting grace by looking at three different stories. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Grace that saves. This is grace that saves. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 8, verse 1. Now read through verse 6. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back at the temple again. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious laws and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? He says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his fingers. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He knows that they're trying to trap him. If he says to stone them, they'll call him a hypocrite for having no mercy. You've forgiven all these other sins while you're on the earth. You've told us to have mercy. Why not for her? But if he says not to stone her, then they'll say he's guilty of breaking breaking Mosaic law. They'll say the law says to stone her. So you're going against what the law says. 
So he goes down to write in the dust. We don't know exactly what he's saying. My first thought when I read it is he's like, I can't deal with y'all. I'll be right back. Let me just... That's probably not it. One possible answer for this is found in the book of Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. It goes on to say, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. It's possible he was writing their names for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. It's possible that he's like, I really can't deal with y'all right now. Um, probably what we see in Jeremiah, so we'll go with that. But let's look at what the story goes on to say. Reading from verse 7, it says, They kept demanding an answer. So we stood up and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust again. He's like, I'm serious. I can't. Um, Y'all figure it out. I just told you. No, he's again writing it. It goes on to say, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. And watch what this says. Until only Jesus was left in the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Do you know what's really powerful about this passage of scripture? If Jesus wanted to, he could have thrown the first stone. That's why everyone left except for him. Everyone slipped away, but the one person who was without sin chose mercy. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is full of mercy? Instead of choosing to throw the first stone, he chooses to show grace. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's grace that saves. Let's look at another story. This is grace that changes. If you have your Bibles still, turn them to Luke chapter 19, verse 1. I'm turning to the page, but it's just a lot easier to see on my iPad here because I typed it out in my notes, so I am turning there. Um, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Some translations will say he was not mighty in stature. It's a nicer way to say it. I think we should um, adapt those words to today's, not for any personal reason by any means, just for other people um, asking for a friend. Verse 4 says, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, as a chief tax collector and as a Jewish person, Zacchaeus would have been considered a traitor, number one, and a thief. Some people might argue that the IRS is doing the same exact thing today, and they're still traitors and thieves, but that's not where I'm going with my message today. But he's a powerful man, okay? I, I think that we need to do a little thinking, and we need to think that he's heard about Jesus. We don't see that in Scripture, but 
why else would he try so hard to see somebody that he's never heard of? So likely he's heard of Jesus. He's heard some stories. So really the Messiah, he claims to be the Messiah and he associates himself with notorious sinners. A group of people that Zacchaeus likely knew he was a part of. So he's down for a reason. He's drawn to Jesus. It doesn't explicitly say in this passage of scripture, but if Zacchaeus knows and has heard these things about Jesus, he has this feeling that he cannot see him. But because of his height, he can't see. So he climbs what's called a sycamore fig tree. And if you look at what these look like, they're very leafy, they're very bushy, and it's hard to see through them. So his goal is not to be seen by Jesus. And some of us do that when we come to church. I'm just going to hide in this bush and I'll see them, but just don't let God locate me here. I'm just not in the mood to hear from God. But how many of you know that Jesus can see right through the things that you try to hide behind? God can see right through it. So we read on in verse five, it says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. He goes, you ain't fooling nobody. Zacchaeus, I see you. Uh, Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly came down and took Jesus into his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Doesn't that happen? I imagine they showed up that day like, Jesus is walking by. I've been reading my Bible every day. Quote me three scriptures, I got you. How long did you pray this morning? Only 45 minutes? Oh, hour 45 here. Yeah, easy. Jesus is gonna be a guest in my home for sure. But Jesus calls down the notorious sinner out of the tree who's hiding. (laughs) And watch what it goes on to say in verse eight. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated anybody on their taxes, I will give them four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown to be himself a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. But wait a second, when we're reading this passage of scripture, something happened. We go from Zacchaeus takes him into his house and people are grumbling. And then all of a sudden it says, and Zacchaeus stood up. Something happened in between that passage of scripture. Something that we don't see. Why don't we see it? Who knows? Maybe Jesus didn't want us to just take exactly what he said and turn it into some kind of religious formula where if you want to fix somebody, you just take Luke 19, chapter 7.5 and just plug it into anybody that you see. But we see that something happened. Now, I don't know if Zacchaeus had a lot of friends, but in the theater of my mind, I imagine this situation that Zacchaeus has lots and lots of servants, people who work for him, co-workers, but I'm wondering how many friends does he have? 
And I'm just picturing it, and I'm almost imagining Jesus does a lot of listening. And Zacchaeus is just speaking his heart out, and for the first time he feels heard by someone who who cares for him, someone who loves him. But Zacchaeus has one moment with Jesus that's not even recorded in scripture, and he stands up and says, I'm changing everything. Turn to your neighbor and say, something has to change. Now imagine if Zacchaeus goes on to say, he encounters this grace with God, he he gives away half his wealth, pays back everyone that he has, and then goes back to tax collecting, stealing from people again. And he might say, After, you know, this is my job. This is, I got to do it. I'm sorry. But when you encounter the grace of God, something has to change. And Jesus will meet you exactly where you are. But do you know that he loves you too much to let you stay there? Jesus loves you and he's going to say, no, don't stay here. Don't stay in the same life that I just set you free from. Come up here. Be free. Let me lift you up out of this. Encountering the true grace of God will change you. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, grace that changes. changes. And I have one more story to look at. And this will be the story I close on, which means four more pages of notes, so don't, don't start gathering your things here. But I want to look at something called the grace that restores. So let me ask you this question. If you see something in the Bible, I think we would all agree that's important. Any objections? No. How many of you agree? You see something in the Bible, this is important. What if you saw something in the Bible Twice. You see where I'm going with this. Now, imagine with me, you see something in the Bible four times. The Spirit is trying to say something. This is important. This is perfect for me. My wife needs to tell me anything at least four times uh, before I finally start to process uh, what she's saying. Sorry, I repent. But I want to look at a story that we read, not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but also in the Gospel of Mark, Luke, and John. This is the story of Peter denying Jesus. In all four Gospel accounts. If I was Peter, I'd be like, are you guys serious? (laughs) Can't leave that part out. All four of you put it in there? What? (laughs) But Holy Spirit for a reason, compelled each author to include this in their gospel account. Do you know why? Because there's power in sharing your weakest moments with other people. There's power in it. There's power when we stop pretending like all of our lives here, we just leave this church and then go back to a perfect, peaceful life with no adversity, no struggles, no doubts, no moments of weakness. Come on now. There's power in sharing your weakest moments. These authors aren't ganging up on Peter like, hey, you know what would be really funny? You know that thing he did, remember? Let's all put it in there. All four gospel 
include this story because it's important to understand we all need God's grace. Even a disciple who we read about as zealous and determined as Peter, the one who saw Jesus on the water, said, Lord, is that you? Bet I'm coming out. Call me. I'm coming. That man needed God's grace. All of us in this room, we need God's grace. And so I want to start to summarize this story. Judas betrays Jesus, just like Jesus said he would. Shocker, Jesus said it and it happened. Jesus is brought before the high priest. And something important that scripture says is that Peter was following at a distance. So the story is set up. Jesus is going to the high priest and Peter has distanced himself from Jesus. He didn't fall behind. He didn't get lost on the way. He has intentionally distanced himself from Jesus. And as we read the story, three different people came up to Peter and they identify him as a disciple. And three different times, we know that Peter denies this. And in the midst of his last sentence, denying that he belonged to Jesus, the rooster crowed again, just as Jesus said would happen. Again, shocker, Jesus said it and it happened. The story goes on as most of us know. Jesus would go on to be crucified for the forgiveness of our sin. Fulfilling the prophecy that we see in Genesis 3. The crucifixion of Jesus was prophesied in the first book of the Bible. Jesus is speaking to the serpent who deceived the woman. He says, you are more cursed than all animals, and for this reason, you will slither on your belly. Verse 15 in Genesis 3 says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring of the serpent meaning sin, causing hostility between the offspring of the woman being Jesus eventually on the earth. And just like we've seen it, Jesus has struck the head of the serpent, conquering sin, setting us free from sin through his amazing grace. But he also sacrificed his life in the process, the serpent striking his heel. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? <laughs> How many of you know there's some extra pretty important parts that are to follow? Hallelujah. Yes, we do. Three days later, Jesus rose from the, get, from the dead. Again, shocker, just as he said he would. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is risen. Now try again like you mean it. <laughs> Thank you. After the Sabbath, the women are going to anoint Jesus' body with certain herbs and spices as custom to their beliefs. But when they approach the tomb, they're talking to themselves like, hey, who's going to roll the stone away? And as they approach the tomb, they see that the stone is already rolled away. And again, they see an angel of the Lord. He said, he's not here. 
I mean, didn't he tell you guys that he wasn't going to be here? <laughs> Again, just as Jesus said, he was gone. And I want to focus in on the grace that Peter receives by looking at one passage of scripture. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation of Mark 16, 17. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Wow, one flip. Did you see that? That's anointed right there. Or the new, uh, NIV, I'm sorry. I'll read you what mine says. It says, but go and tell the disciples and Peter. Mark 16, 17 says, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And as Scott would come as I start to close, simply to me, one of the ways to define the grace of God is simply with two words, and Peter. The one who distanced himself from God. The one who denied that he belonged to him three separate occasions. He's not saying exclude Peter from this passage here. He's not saying, yeah, go tell his disciples. And I guess let Peter know too, that other not disciple guy. Peter has distanced himself from God. He's distanced himself from the disciples. If they were to say, just go tell the disciples, Peter would have thought to himself, well, that doesn't mean me. I blew it. I've already missed it. I can't consider myself a disciple anymore. I denied him three times. And I distanced myself from him. But the angel says, and the angel's not coming up with this. The angel's a messenger from Jesus. Remember, he said, tell Peter too. He said, make sure Peter knows. So they go and they tell everyone and they tell Peter and Peter thinks to himself, I better go check this out for myself. Luke 24, 12 says, however, Peter jumped up and ran into the tomb to look Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. But watch this. Says, then he went home again, wondering what happened. Peter, what do you mean you're wondering what happened? <laughs> the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Everything that Jesus has said would happen has come true up to this point. What makes this moment any different? Peter goes home and wonders to himself. But last we saw Peter, he had left the place of the high priest. Well, after he denies Jesus, the Bible says that he ran out, he was crying bitterly, he was weeping, and, and he's left. And here's what happens. Jesus says, I'm going to go see Peter myself. He's risen, he's in his redeemed body. He's appearing to different disciples and different people while he's on the earth before he takes his spot in heaven. And he goes out to find that Peter has gone back to being a fisherman. Now, let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman, but Jesus called Peter to be an apostle. He didn't call him to be a fisherman. 
he's called him to be an apostle. But maybe in his own mind, he feels like he's just messed up too many times at this point. No, I, you know, I ran away. I distanced myself. I, I, even after I heard the rooster crow, I, I could have said something. I could have tried to help. I just blew it. And this mistake that I've made is just too big. I just, I can't go back to God using me again. I can't. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe at one point in your life, you were on fire for God. And his spirit burned inside you. And then life happened and you feel like you've messed up too many times for God to still be able to use you. So what happens? You go back to your old life before you knew Jesus. You start hanging around the same people you used to hang out with, who you know you shouldn't be. You start falling into old habits that you know you shouldn't be. But you think to yourself, I'm already so broken. I've messed up so many times. I've blown it. I might as well just go back to where I was because this is who I am after all. But can I tell you this morning, your sin and your failures and your shortcoming are no match for what Jesus did on the cross. The nerve we have to think that our sin could be greater than the sacrifice that Jesus had. His blood is sufficient for your salvation and his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every trial that you encounter. Your sin is no match for the unrelenting grace that God has. God is pursuing you. Watch what we see. Jesus has gone to see Peter and he sees Peter and the disciples fishing. Peter has no idea. I just think this would be a great comedy bit if someone made it. So Jesus asks, hey, you caught any fish? Peter's thinking to himself, you see any fish on the boat? He doesn't know he's talking to Jesus. He just says, no. Jesus says, try throwing your net on the right side. Peter's probably thinking, if I knew which side was the right side that had all the fish on the right side, then I would have thrown my net on that side in the first place. On a whim, he listens to this voice of someone that he doesn't recognize. He throws his net over to the right side of the boat, and so many fish come into his net that he can't contain it. But something important that it says is that the net is not broken. Do you know that God wants to give you so much that it feels like you can't contain it, but God will not let your net break? God will hold it together. God will keep you together. God might be moving some of you to greater areas of responsibility that are going to lead to greater blessings. And we think to ourselves, I can't do this. There's no way I can handle it. God will keep your net together. Amen. So what do we see? He literally jumps out of the boat. I mean, you would think he would just turn the boat around, but he jumps out of the boat, leaves the other disciples. That would be comparable if you were driving in the car with me and I slam on the brakes, hit park and sprint out. Okay, they're in the boat like, did he just swim? So they recognize that it's Jesus. 
They bring the boat back to shore. And, and I'm wondering again, in the theater of my mind, what is Peter expecting as he's making his way back? What was his last conversation with Jesus? He rebukes Jesus and tells him that he's wrong. He said, no, Lord, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will. So he's making his way back. I wonder if in his mind, he's expecting Jesus to be like, hey, Peter, what I say? I was right. I told you so. I told you you'd deny me. I knew you would too. No, maybe he's just in his mind thinking of an apology. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I, didn't rec- I didn't recognize, and then I heard the crow, and I just didn't know what to do. And he's just, maybe he's expecting just the lecture of a lifetime. But do you know what's incredible about this story? Jesus doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't mention anything about how Peter distanced himself. He doesn't mention anything about how Peter denied him on three separate occasions. What does he do? He said, I've prepared breakfast. Come on and eat. Jesus then gives Peter a a, a chance to redeem himself. You know that Peter was already redeemed because Jesus went on to die on the cross for the forgiveness of his sins, but Peter would never start to walk back into what he was called to be, an apostle, unless he felt that chance of redemption himself. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that Peter needed to feel it for himself, that he was able to go back and to be an apostle again. So what does Jesus ask Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. Okay, he's like, okay, I don't know what that means at this moment, but, and Jesus asks again, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. He said, okay, then feed my sheep. And one last time, Jesus asked him, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Yes, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. Do you see what just happened? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many opportunities did Jesus just give Peter to confess his love for him? Aren't you glad that we serve a God of redemption? Aren't you glad we serve a God who restores us? And here's the thing. Jesus allowed Peter to redeem himself without bringing up his past one time. And if we could get a hold of this in the church, where we don't hold someone's past against them, like you're redeemed, but here's your asterisk. You've been redeemed from. Jesus just says, you are redeemed. Because no matter how big the mistake you've made or no matter how many times you've blown it, Jesus will always give you a chance to redeem yourself. You are forgiven, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you said, but because of what Jesus has already done. And Jesus said, it is finished. This 
is the unrelenting grace that God has. And I just believe that there's some people who are like Peter. Maybe you're here and you've distanced yourself from him. You've been following, but from a distance. And you know God has called you to be in the mix. You know God has called you to be an apostle. You know God has called you to do something greater than what you're operating in right now. And some of us have allowed insecurity, fear, and our sin to keep us from what God has called us to do. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. God didn't call Peter to be a fisherman. He called him to be an apostle. So all across this room, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And with no one looking around, this is just a moment for you to have with God. I just feel like he's calling some people home this morning. He's calling some people to follow a little closer. There's some people who are on the race and God is telling you it's time to pick up the pace. So with no one looking around, and this isn't just for me to see, this isn't for God to see because God already knows your heart. This is for you to be honest with yourself. If there's anybody here and you need to follow closer, would you slip up a hand just so that I can pray for you? Hallelujah. God is calling you closer. Hallelujah. Thank you. You can all put your hands down all across this room. And I I won't end a service without giving this opportunity. If there's anybody here who's felt distant from God, and if you were to breathe your last breath in this moment, if you're not 100% certain that you would make heaven your home, and if you want to change that this morning, whether for the first time or for a rededication of your life to give to Jesus, again, would you slip up a hand just so that we can pray together? Hallelujah, I see you over here. We will pray, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, thank you for everyone who rose their hand. God, who have been distant from you. God, we just pray that the power and the strength of your grace, Father, would just overflow this room. And Father, any time that some sin would try to appear that it is stronger than your grace, Father, remind us that our sin is no match for your grace. Hallelujah. Church, we have someone who wants to give their life to Jesus this morning. Believing in your heart, would you pray this out loud with me? Father God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to die and raise from the dead for me. Jesus, forgive me of all my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness and help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. Jesus, come into my heart. Challenge me and change me and make me the person you want me to be. My life is yours today. Never to be taken back. 
all across this room, look at me real quick. Real quick, real quick, real quick. Whether you raised your hand or not, if you believed in your heart and you confessed those words with your mouth, I believe that if Jesus were to come back for his church in this very moment, that he'd come back for you too. And you would spend eternity with a God who loves you. Let me close by just sharing this story. God's grace. Remember, we said something has to change. And I believe that God is calling some people into a new season in their life. So let me share quickly with you the first mistake I made in my marriage. I woke up early the first morning. I know, (laughs) a great record, right? And I'm kind of in this routine. You know, I get up on the earlier side and have some coffee, just relax. And so I stayed in my routine that I was in before I was married. So I get up, and I know, don't look at me like that, I made one cup of coffee for myself. (laughs) I know. My wife wakes up and says, oh, you just made the one cup for yourself? And I made a pot of coffee. And you know what? I always make a pot of coffee now, enough not just for myself when I wake up, but enough for my wife. Do you know why? Because when you enter into new seasons of your life, it requires adjustments, okay? Things have to change. And I encourage you with that this morning because you might be entering into this new season and you might make some mistakes. You might miss some adjustments that need to be made. But if you stick with it, God will help you adapt because his grace will help us change. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray one last time. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for lives that were changed, not because of me, but Father, because of you. And God, we just thank you that your word is true. We thank you that the words that you spoke through me will remain in the hearts of your people this morning. And Father, I just pray for everybody who gave their life to Jesus this morning. And Father, those who answered the call to take that next step, to follow closer than they are now, Father, that you would just encourage them, surround them with with men and women of God who will support them and help them as they enter the new seasons of their life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to dismiss you guys. Please give me and my wife a second to get out to the back so we can shake your hand. If you, uh, if you don't see me, look down. That's usually where I am if you're, when I'm not on the stage. Be blessed.